Well, it is wonderful to worship with you all today, to sing those wonderful hymns on what we call Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ every single Lord's Day, every Sunday. But even the world knows that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ today. And it has been that way from very early times in the church. And we come today to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to see our hope that is built upon Christ and all that he's done, including the resurrection. So I'm thankful that you're here. I'm so thankful you're here with us this morning and uh, glad to be able to worship with you, to look into the scriptures and let God's word remind us and teach us once again of how important the resurrection is. Today I want to bring a special message entitled The Message of the Empty Tomb. The Message of the Empty Tomb. Mostly we'll be looking at a passage in Luke 24, the first 12 verses. But if this is your first time visiting, I recommend and advise that you come back next Sunday as we are working our way through Romans, almost at the Gospel of Romans, but it really is the Gospel according to Paul in Romans. And we've been making our way through Romans verse by verse, passage by passage. So you can see there, if you come back, a little bit of expository style as we work through the book of Romans. Uh, today I will be expositing Luke 12, 1 through 12, and then also at the end I hope to bring to you some application, some of the message, the importance, the theology of why the empty tomb should matter to us. So if you would turn with me to Luke 24, we're actually going to back up and start in, in 2350 to get some context on our Good Friday service. I, I went through the last week of Christ's life before the resurrection. And we started on Palm Sunday when he came in, Triumphal Sunday. We worked our way through the Monday of the cleansing of the temple, the teaching that he did in the, in the temple on Tuesday, the Silent Wednesday, training Thursday where he trained his disciples and gave them specific commandments. Then there was crucifixion Friday and all that went on and the different trials that he suffered. And even then he was declared innocent every single time. And yet they killed him. They killed him. And we know that was all part of God's plan. That was for us, for those who would believe. He suffered. He paid the penalty of our sin that's due to us. And then on Saturday, his body lies empty in the tomb. So I want to pick back up in Luke 23, 50, so you can see the burial. And then we'll read into 24 on his resurrection. And behold, a man named Joseph, who was a council member, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their counsel and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and beheld the tomb and how his body was laid. Then after they returned, they prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone, the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And when the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And when they returned from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the rest of the women with them were there. They were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they were not believing them. But Peter stood up and ran to the tomb. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away by himself, marveling at what had happened. The resurrection is essential to the gospel. Yes, we need to talk about Christ as a Christian. We need to talk about his life, his teachings, his crucifixion on the cross, how he died for sinners. But we can't leave out the resurrection. It is essential. It is a component of the gospel. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance, the most important thing I could tell you, what I also received, he says, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says, look, this is the gospel in a nutshell. That Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised again. It's essential that we believe in the resurrection, that we believe in a supernatural event, and we tell it to others and we're unashamed of it. There's a lot of Christianity today that's very ashamed of the gospel, and they're ashamed of this supernatural event called the resurrection. In fact, since the very beginning, even in Scripture, we see excuses that are made by the Jews as to what might have happened to his body. And that's the first time we see one of these denials of the resurrection. A stolen body. The disciples must have come. They must have stolen the body. And then propagated the hoax of his resurrection. So it says in the Bible that an immediate lie spread by Jewish leaders who paid the soldiers that guarded the tomb to say this. They were bribing them. So that's a common theory today as to what might have happened, they say, with Jesus' body. Another one today is the swoon theory. So you have this stolen body theory. And other people say, well, he just really didn't die. He swooned. He sort of looked like he was dead. And then they put him in the tomb thinking he was dead. And it's one of those cases where they bury somebody that's still alive. And suddenly he pops back up, even though he was stabbed by a spear and he was clearly dead upon the cross. Uh, Others say, look, the women who came and then Peter and then John, they ended up at the wrong tomb. So they walked into the wrong tomb that hasn't been used yet. And what do you know? It is empty. Others today say that the apostles and the women just hallucinated. The disciples wanted so badly for Jesus to be raised that they just hallucinated that and all of the appearances after that where he showed up. And then, of course, very common today is that it was all a myth. Atheists will say that it was all a myth, that it's just made up, that it has no historical fact in history. All these really are attempts by the world to deny the resurrection, to deny a core fundamental of the faith. 
Anytime people want to go after Christianity, they either go after the Bible as a whole, saying it's not inspired by God, it's not inerrant or anything like that, it's not authoritative, they say, or they go after Christ's death and resurrection. Those are the big targets. And so that tells you how important, even the world knows how important the resurrection is to the Christian. Well, today I want to look at this passage with you. And the first thing that I want you to see, really the whole passage is about this, Number one, the fact of Christ's resurrection in history. The fact of Christ's resurrection in history. Even historians today that are not Christians will acknowledge that a man named Jesus lived. That a man named Jesus, who was a great teacher, they say, lived and he died under the Romans with the Jewish leadership involved. Even some unbelieving Jews will say, and I saw this in a, in a book a man wrote, I think it was in the 80s, a book on how he believed that God supernaturally raised a man named Jesus, like he did in other places in the Old Testament, and raised Jesus, and yet the man said Jesus was not the Messiah. Well, in this text, we already see that it was a fact in history. Even later, historical secular authors in ancient times after this event will write about Jesus. But that doesn't matter. What matters to us as Christians is what's in the Bible. That's of most primary importance. What does the Bible say? Some say today we can cast aside our Bible and we just go to the historical record. That's all we need. The Bible is a historical record. It is a historical record. And it's been proven so over and over and over. Well, let's look at verse 1 of this text. On the first day of the week. This is the first day of the week in the Jewish and Roman calendar. It's still our first day on our calendar, even though people don't go to, usually to work on the first day of the week. It's our Sunday. Sunday was the day that Jesus was raised. It's why we call it the Lord's Day. It's why Christians have gathered to worship for 2,000 years on Sunday. Why? Not because some early Christians sort of picked a, a day out of the hat, but that's the day he was raised. We don't worship on the Sabbath, the Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. We worship on Sunday. Traditionally, that has been for 2,000 years, and it's also even before the end of the Bible. We see John talking about worshiping on the Lord's Day, and Paul talking about worshiping and gathering on the first day of the week. So here they go out the first day of the week, and it's early dawn, the text says in verse 1. Early dawn, deep dawn, literally. The sun is not up yet. The sun is not fully up. It's probably right before the sun is starting to come up. They come to the tomb bringing the spices that they had stayed up late that night on Friday night preparing. They, they, they prepared spices, then they took the Sabbath day off, and then they're going to come back early, early Sunday morning. Well, Jesus was crucified on Friday, which is what chapter 23 verse 54 says, and that was preparation day. This is a technical term for the day of Sabbath. Even today in Greece, the word for their Friday is preparation day in Greek. The very same word here in the original New Testament Greek that is used. Today they call it preparation day in Greece. That's Friday. His body's laid in the tomb. We read there in chapter 23 about that. And it's resting there on the Sabbath. The women are resting. Everybody's resting. On Sunday, they show up with these spices. And Mark says that the women even bought more spices on the way out of town. So they had all these spices. And you can imagine that they're thinking during the Sabbath, we probably need some more spices. That would really honor the Lord to give them all that we can. And so on their way out of the city early that morning, 
they bought some more spices. And so they arrive at the tomb, and look what it says in verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Just like you probably picture this as a large disc-shaped stone that would have a groove in it so that you could roll it. But it would take two or three men with all their strength to roll this stone out of the way. The women could not do this. Even as a group, they would have a hard time. And so Mark tells us in his gospel that they were worried about it. They ask, who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now they're going. It doesn't matter to them if, if they try all day to roll it or they wait for a passerby to help them. They are going to see the Lord's body and to anoint it with these spices. But they're already wondering, who's going to roll it away for us? Well, there had been guards placed there. There had been guards that the Jews had asked Pilate for. And Pilate says, it's very interesting, he says, here's your guards and put them there. Go ahead and put them there if they can guard it. Go ahead and put them there. And so it's interesting that they don't end up guarding it. In Matthew, it tells us, behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. More supernatural events. We see these things happen when Christ is dying on the cross. There's an earthquake. There's darkness for three hours. People are raised in the tomb. They come back to life. People who had recently died. And another supernatural event occurs here. A great earthquake, Matthew says, had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. That's the cause of the earthquake. He came and he rolled away the stone and he sat upon it. Now that's very interesting. Angels just don't show up and sit on things. So you can imagine, here's already a sign of victory. Here's already a sign of conquest over the grave. The angel rolls it away and he sits on it. And Matthew even says that his clothing was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The ones that Pilate had given the Sanhedrin to station there, they're done with that. They take off. They get out of there and have to beg for their lives, basically. And the Jewish leaders agree that if they'll tell a lie, the Jewish leaders will not report this to Pilate. So God provided providentially. Look already, God provided for these women by rolling that stone away. They want to go and they want to honor their Lord. They want to honor him with these spices and God provided. And I really believe that the stone was rolled away not just so they could get in, but for them to, to see to see that Jesus, they just could look right in before they even walked in there and see that it's empty. They could see that it's empty. It's not for Jesus to walk out. He doesn't need a stone rolled away so he can walk out. He has a resurrected body. And you might recall in the Gospel of John where later he just shows up in a locked room. And we don't really know if that's him walking through the door or just suddenly appearing. But whatever it means, it means that he could pass through or just suddenly appear in places. He doesn't need the stone rolled away. He doesn't need doors. Verse 3. He, he's not there. They entered. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now notice it says Lord Jesus. If you read through the Gospel of Luke. An interesting fact is. This is the very first time. In the longest Gospel account. That the word Lord and Jesus are put together. Because Luke wants to focus on the risen Christ. He is the Lord Jesus. And the resurrection proves that without a doubt. The crucified Jesus is now the exalted Lord Jesus. He's not there. He's risen. But the women, they don't understand. They're confused. 
They're, they're, they're really confused about this because they didn't listen and believe to the teachings of Jesus before that. How many times today do we go to the Bible and not listen to what it says? It's right there in front of us like Jesus was in front of them in person telling them what was going to happen. And they're shocked. They're surprised. And we often wonder why. Because they weren't paying attention at all times. They weren't listening to the words of Christ. We don't sometimes, we don't listen to the Bible. We read it. We hear it preached. But we're zoning out. Maybe we stayed up too late or didn't have enough coffee. Or or maybe we get up early to read our Bibles. and, And like they did when they got up early to go to the tomb. And we're tired. And we're confused at what we're reading. But you'll see in the moment that they're rebuked by the angels for that. Well, it says that they were perplexed. Or maybe your translation says confused in verse 4. They have a confused state of mind. They're at a loss. They have doubt. They're uncertain. What's going on? What are they seeing? And so God is going to send some angels to correct them. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Matthew and Mark only mention one angel. They're focused on the angel doing the speaking. But Luke tells us there's actually two angels there. And their, their clothing was dazzling. It was gleaming. It's the same word used for lightning. It's so bright, it looks like lightning. It would, it would blind you. And look what they did. They're terrified. They bow their faces to the ground. They fall flat on their faces. They're fearful. This is what happens when angels show up. People talk today about angels showing up and talking with them. And I just want to ask, did you fall down in fear for your life? You know, people talk of, of, of angels and they, they talk of women flying around with wings doing nice things. But when people show up that are angels in the Bible, it's terrifying because the glory of God is on display. Not the full glory of God, but just enough in the angels to make people fear for their lives. And they'll often cry out in the Old Testament, Lord, don't kill me. Save me, Lord. And here you have these women doing the same thing. They bowed their faces to the ground. Now, the angels give two rebukes, and they're not strong rebukes. These are not false teachers or anything of the sort. But the women had forgotten things that the Lord Jesus taught. And so they say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why are you looking for the one who's living? They're sort of saying, this is absurd. The living don't hang out among the dead. Remember, Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. That's essentially what the angel's saying. The person is looking for, these women are looking for a Christ, a dead body in the tomb. And he has risen. They're lamenting over his death. They're wondering what happened. And he's saying, look, stop focusing on the empty tomb. You need to be seeking Jesus. You need to be looking for him. That's the right question. Where is he right now so I can go talk to him? Not, why is the tomb empty? The idea is Jesus is not dead. He's alive. Seek him now. Look for him now. Find him while you still can. He's going to ascend in a few days after this. About 40 days he'll teach and then ascend. Find him now. He's a living Savior. We need to seek him now. The Bible tells us over and over, seek Christ now. Not because we're worried about him ascending as he's not with us physically right now. But there is a time when our life will come to an end. There is a time where we will not breathe anymore. And if we haven't sought Jesus Christ, well, we'll be going into a place of punishment and not of blessing. Well, verse 6, the second rebuke comes. Again, just gentle rebukes to these women. 
He's not here, but he has risen. That's where he is. Remember, remember, think back to how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be. That means it must happen. There's no doubt this is all God's predestined plan. It must happen that he be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. He had taught that. He had taught that in Galilee. He had said it over and over and over to his disciples, and the women were there. The women were listening. The women were in the crowds. But right now, they're at the tomb. They're just living in the moment. Their emotions are are guiding them. They're not thinking back to that. I'm sure we would all be pretty much in the same situation as them. And the angel says, remember what he said. Remember the words of Jesus. Even in John 2, he says this to the whole crowd gathered at the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to destroy it in three days and raise it up again? And he, speaking, John says, of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. How many times in our life do we know what the Bible says, we forget it, we go and sin and mess up, and then we remember the text of Scripture. Then we remember what Jesus said in His Word. Well, Psalm 1610 tells us, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The resurrection of Christ fulfills not only what Jesus prophesied, but also what the Old Testament said would come to happen with the Holy One of Israel. In other words, everything is according to God's sovereign plan. Everything. We should recognize that because when it comes to God's sovereignty, sometimes we push back. We don't want to believe in God's sovereignty. But as someone reminded me this morning, like Charles Spurgeon said, it is the pillow that we can rest our head on. It is the comfort that we can rest our head on in times of trouble. And the angels are saying, this is all part of God's sovereignty. In fact, he even told you ahead of time exactly what would happen. You just need to remember his words. And then in verse 8, they says they remembered his words. Now they know. They know he must be raised. And they turn and they go back. They return from the tomb, verse 9. They reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They're obeying the angels. Remember it. Go back. Tell the others. Now Judas is already dead at this point. Uh, Judas is dead, so it's the other 11 apostles that are gathered. But the women here are the first ones to tell other people about the resurrection. That's key. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll find over and over, he prominently talks about women in Jesus' ministry. Now, don't get it wrong. He's not appointing these women as pastors. He's not telling them to go be preachers. Some people try to find that in this text. He would be contradicting what he says later through Paul when he says that women are not to be pastors and elders in the church. But he is giving them a prominent place here. Think about it. These women who went to the tomb are the very first ones to see the empty tomb. And one of them, Mary Magdalene, is the first one to speak with the risen Christ. That's a prominent place. Women have a vital place in the ministry of the church. Verse 10, he lists the names now. Mary Magdalene. Always mentioned first in the list of witnesses to the resurrection. She was a sinful woman who had seven demons cast out of her and she was saved. 
No matter the sin that she had committed, she came to Christ, she was saved, and she gets to be the first one to look into the tomb, the first one to speak to Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us that as the women leave the tomb to go back, Mary is still there crying a little bit longer because she doesn't know what's going on, and Jesus shows up. She thinks he's the gardener taking care of all the tombs, and it turns out it's Jesus. And when he tells her that, she just clings to him. And he has to say, stop clinging to me. Go and tell others. Also in the list in verse 10, we have another woman, Joanna. Joanna is the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. The evil king, Herod Antipas. And this is the steward, the one who takes care of his property and his buildings and makes sure he has all the food he needs. His wife has been traveling around with Jesus, listening, learning. She is a Christian, we would call her. And Mary, the mother of James, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but a couple of men named James and Joseph. Mary is there, the mother of them. And also other women, a whole group. A whole group would travel around as Jesus was in Galilee, and they would take care of the things that the disciples needed them to. This was very unusual for a Jewish rabbi. Yes, because they were often worried about you know men uh, mixed with women that, that weren't their wives, but even more so, The rabbis did not allow women to even train with them. It was unheard of. And yet Jesus is looking out and he is talking and he is preaching and they are hearing it. And remember who was at the cross the longest? It was the women. From a distance, they were watching the crucifixion. What happened to his apostles? What happened to those men who had been with him all that time? They're gone. They're getting out of there as fast as they can But the women, they're sitting back and they're watching and they are weeping. Well, now they're celebrating because the tomb is empty. And they're telling these things, it says in verse 10, to the apostles. They just kept on telling the idea here. They just kept on saying over and over what they had seen. They're not going to give up. They want to convince these apostles. These women, the first eyewitnesses are telling them. And here's in in verse 11, the men say, this sounds like nonsense. You know, you women... This is an old wives' tale or something. What is going on here? The word for nonsense here means that which is totally devoid of anything worthwhile. It's idle talk. It's humbug. Medical writers would use it for delirium and hysteria. You women are crazy, they're saying. And again, Luke is recording this real honest doubt. This real honest doubt. Think about it. If someone was making up the accounts in the Bible... They wouldn't show these apostles in weakness. They wouldn't show the apostles being doubtful of the resurrection. If the apostles are are writing this without inspiration from God and just making it up, they would make them sound wonderful, right? They themselves would be the best, strongest, most faithful people in the Bible. But here they're doubting. They do not believe. Even though Christ said it would happen, even though the women have been eyewitnesses, they do not believe. You know, the resurrection is no myth. It's no literary fabrication. It is true. We see it in all the gospel accounts. We see it mentioned in Acts. We see it mentioned in 1 Corinthians. This idea of it being a myth does not stand in the face of this section of Scripture. Well, the men think the women are confused. But Peter, he finally gets it. I don't know if the Lord just opened his mind, opened his heart, but he gets it. And he runs to the tomb. 
And Peter, he's not going to doubt any longer. He, he has had his time of doubting and he has learned his lesson. Remember, he was very prideful. And he said, I'll never deny you, Lord. And what happened? The Lord said, Satan will sift you like wheat. He will put you in the wheat shaker and shake you up to sift out the wheat. And Satan's going to throw you around back and forth and really bang you up. But Jesus says, I'll be there. I will be there to restore you. And then you will go restore everyone else. I think that was going through Peter's mind. You know, the Lord said I would deny him. I was prideful. And now he's risen like he said. I am running to the tomb. Now, John also ran. And John outran him because John's younger. And there's always that famous joke that, that Peter says, well, no one will know. And John says, you just wait. Everyone will know that I outran you. And of course, John puts that in his gospel. That the disciple that the Lord loved got there quicker. So there is some benefit to running. Okay, Everybody who likes to run and exercise, you might just be the first one to a certain event. Well, Peter stoops and looks in. And he saw the linen wrappings only. There's no body. It just confirms what he heard. And John, in John 27, a very interesting statement on this. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. That's the face cloth. It was a special cloth he put over the face of the body. And then the rest of the body was, was wrapped in linen. The face cloth is folded up. Why would John mention that? What's the point? Why that little detail, John? Well, it's not so people can speculate on the internet forever and ever about what happened. It is simple, I think. He's showing that the body could not have been stolen. The thief's not going to take the body, first of all, because that's not valuable. The body's going to rot if it's just a dead body. They would take the linen. They would take the face cloth, which was the most valuable piece of the burial clothing. Grave robbers don't leave that and then fold up the face cloth nice and neat and set it down. No, Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Undeniable evidence that he rose up from the grave. He folded his face cloth. See, kids, there's always a reason. Make your bed, fold your laundry, do as mom says, because even Jesus at his resurrection folded up his laundry. And Peter went away to his home. He's just marveling, it says. He's amazed. He's got this idea of wonderment. He's surprised, amazed, marveling at what had happened. I think he was smiling. I think he knew the Lord had been raised. The Lord had risen just like he had promised. He was excited. When am I going to see Jesus again? He's recalling in his mind that promise that he would see the Lord. Peter had learned his lesson. No more pride. Now he is humble. Now he is looking forward to seeing the Lord. Do we really stop and marvel like that at the resurrection? Do we think about what it truly means to us that Christ was raised? What it would have been like to be there, but even more so now to read and study it in our Bibles? We should be amazed. Let's not just get used to reading it over and over. It's just old hat. It's nothing new. Now this is amazing. Things like this don't happen. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. Fully glorified. Well, secondly, let's talk now about what this means for us. The achievements of Christ's resurrection for the believer. We looked at the history of the passage. I I walked you through what happened there. But let's look now at what this means for us. For the believer. Now there is a lot that the resurrection means. A lot. 
If you ask yourself, what's the meaning, what's the point, what's the purpose, what's the message of the resurrection, we would be here for some time if we went through all of them. When I was in seminary, we went through 19 achievements and results of the resurrection. I just want to point out three to you in the few minutes that we have remaining this morning. I want to point out three main achievements for the believer. What does it mean for us? There's a lot that it did to confirm the prophecies of the Old Testament. There's a lot that it did to show the glory of the Father. But let's talk just about believers. Let's talk about us here this morning. First of all, it proclaimed God the Father's justification of believers. It proclaimed that. Yes, Jesus had taught on it. Yes, Isaiah 53 points to it and describes it very well for a prophecy 700 years before it happened. But here it is, the resurrection confirming it. Let's look at Romans, Romans 4.25. And this is where we get this theology of the resurrection. We often think of the cross as being prominent in justification. And it is, but the resurrection is just as important. Romans 4.25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. He was delivered over by the Jews to the Romans who delivered him over to death. And that was because of our transgressions, our sins. And look, was raised because of our justification. He died for our sins, that's the atonement. And he was raised again for our justification. It confirms, it gives Evidence that God the Father accepted the penalty that Christ paid. We don't have to wonder. Well, Jesus said that he was going to do this. And the Bible says that he was going to do this. But did God the Father accept it? And this verse tells us that, it, that he did. He was raised because of our justification. The old preacher Charles Spurgeon said that this idea of him dying on the cross for our transgression and being raised again for our justification, those are the twin pillars of salvation. The twin pillars that uphold our faith. The work for our justification has been done. It happened on the cross, but it's confirmed in the resurrected Christ. We don't have to doubt it. We don't have to wonder. Am I truly saved if I believe upon Christ? Did the Father accept it? What if I sin? Paul says in Romans 4, he's accepted it. He is raised for our justification. Here's what an old writer had to say as he was explaining this. I look at the cross of Christ and I know that the atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open tomb and the risen and ascended Lord and I know that the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. My sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that covers them is as high as heaven. My sins may have been as deep as the ocean, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that swallows them up is as deep as eternity. He proved it without a doubt. Everything he said came to pass. And he died for the sins of those who put their trust in him, for those who have faith in him, for those who come to him and repent of their sins and turn to Christ as Savior and King. And the resurrection proves that it was accepted by God. Otherwise, God the Father would have never raised him. If God didn't accept the sacrifice, Jesus wouldn't have been raised. 
But he had to be according to the prophecies. And of course, God accepted just like Isaiah 53 said. Number two, the second thing that I want you to see from this text is that it established, the resurrection established motivation for holy living. It established motivation for holy living. Because if we think about it, Jesus is seated with the Father right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we're going to look at a text that says we're in him and we're seated with him. First, let's go to Colossians 3. Uh, Colossians 3 and verse 1. And you'll see this idea that we're to be motivated to live holy lives because he was raised. Not just because he was sacrificed. Yes, he was. But also because we've been raised with him. Colossians 1. Colossians 3, 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you're a believer, Colossian church, if you're a believer listening to this sermon, Grace Bible Church, if you're a believer, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. People who've been raised with Christ because He's raised and we're in Him and we're raised with Him, we already have the promise of resurrection. We're to keep seeking the things above because that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're not to be focused on this world. Like Paul says, the soldier doesn't get into the affairs of the world. He is focused on pleasing his commander and doing his job. Well, we are like that as Christians. We are focused on doing what Christ has told us, pleasing him, glorifying him, and not living like the world, like our own sinful lust, desire. Focus on the things above, and now he tells us what those are. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on the earth, for you died. When you got saved, your old self died. And... What else does he say? Your life has been hidden with Christ in God. You died and you've been raised to newness of life and you've been hidden with Christ. You're with him now and it's in God. Not physically speaking, spiritually speaking. We are protected by God. We are his. And it says when Christ, who is our life, is manifested, when he comes back, you will also be manifested with him in glory. So because we've been raised, we're to live such a life that desires to be holy and we're striving for that and we are growing in our sanctification. It's the most frustrating thing for a believer to not be growing in their sanctification. And rightly so. It should frustrate you. If you're continuing to struggle in this same sin pattern over and over, that should frustrate you. Every believer should be upset about that and feel saddened by that. And get biblical counseling if you can't handle those sin patterns on your own. Come and and see one of the pastors of your church. But here we have this idea that we are to seek godly, godly living, holy living. And we are not to continue in sin like the world. Let's go to Ephesians 2. Same idea here. Ephesians 2, 5. Wonderful passage here in Ephesians 2 talking about how we were dead in our transgressions. In 2, 1, we've been... Uh, raised out of that death. We're not just sick in sin, but we're literally dead. We're on the bottom of the ocean. There's a huge weight setting on us. We're just a skeleton laying there. And then in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in sin and transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. What happened with Christ? 
He was brought back. He was made alive. The empty tomb is empty because he's not there. He's been risen. Well, that's what God has done, spiritually speaking, to each person. There will come a physical resurrection, but now he's just talking about in our hearts, spiritually speaking, we have been made alive again. Even when we were dead, it says in verse 5, in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And look at 6. And raised us up with him. You say, I wasn't there. I wasn't there when he was raised up. No, but because he's been raised and we're with him, we've been raised in that sense. We're no longer dead in sin. And he seated us. This is what's hard. This is mysterious in many ways, but hard for us to conceptualize. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if Christ is in us and we're in him as believers, the writer here, Paul, is saying we're with Christ. We're spiritually with Christ right now as he sits in the heavenlies. And because we're united with him, we are with him even now and we ought to be living for him. Not dragging him, figuratively speaking. Paul talks about dragging him into the sin that we commit in our life. We're with him and he's with us. We're in him and he's in us. We don't want to take that into that relationship into our sin. Live holy because he's been raised. And then lastly, number three that we want to look at today, he guaranteed the future resurrection. By, by being raised again, he guaranteed the future resurrection of the believer's body. This is going to be a new, a glorious body, an immortal body, a powerful form. Life is short. We don't have that long. Some don't last past infancy. Some die as children. Some die in adulthood. Some die in old age. But eventually we all die. And then what happens? Well, we hope and we want a glorified body, but believers are assured of that. Believers will have a glorified body. It'll be one for punishment. It'll be one for pain forever in hell. But believers over and over are promised a new glorified body that will not wear out and will not have any sin. It will be perfect. And Christ, he's the first fruits of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised, there's the resurrection, from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. God is producing fruit. And the fruit here are, are those who follow him. And, and Christ is the very first fruit. Christ is the son of God who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for sinners, was raised again on the third day, and he's the first one to have a glorified body. And we can read about that, and we can, of course, believe that, and worship him for that, and someday we're going to get a glorified body. If you truly are regenerate, if you are saved, Paul opens this up. Go to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, he talks about where we are now. Where we are now. It's hard sometimes for us to think about the future glorified life. What's that going to be like? The Bible does give us a little bit of information about that. In the Old Testament, at the end of the New Testament. Paul says, though, it's going to be greater than we could ever imagine. It's going to be wonderful. But where's our position now? Philippians 3.20. He describes where we're at right now. We're not there yet, but we're citizens. For our citizenship is in heaven. 
That's where Christ is. But we are not there yet. We are citizens of heaven from which we also we eagerly wait for our Savior. We're waiting for him. We're waiting for him to come and get us, to come back. We're waiting for him. And he's going to transform, Paul says here, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. He has a perfect resurrected body, and we're going to get one too if we're his. He'll come back, and he'll do that for us. By his working through which he is able even to, to even subject all things to himself. Let's just finish out by reading 1 Thessalonians 4.14. It's an encouraging passage. Paul meant it to be that. He didn't mean it to be a theological debated passage like it often is. He meant it to be encouraging to those who'd lost loved ones in the faith. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there is the idea the crucifixion, the cross, and the resurrection. By the way, Protestants don't bow before a crucifix with Jesus hanging on it. We, don't, we shouldn't wear that kind of jewelry. Why? He's not on the cross anymore. He's been raised. He's been raised. He's not on the cross anymore. And Paul reminds us over and over of that. And he says here in verse 14, We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's a future day where Christ is going to come and he's going to bring with them those who've fallen asleep, those who've already died in Jesus. Only those who died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of our Lord, that we who are alive, so if he comes back in our lifetime and we're remaining until he comes, we, we will not precede those who've fallen asleep. We're going to see the believers who've died before us and they're going to come with Christ in their resurrected bodies and then we'll get our bodies, he says. For the Lord himself will descend. And he starts to give an order here. He'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who've already gone in Christ will be the first ones to receive the resurrected bodies. Yeah, there were some people in the Old Testament who seem to be taken right up to heaven. And we don't get a lot of information on what their body is now. But this tells us the first ones to receive the resurrected body are those who died in Christ. Then, we who are alive, if he comes back in our lifetime, we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Literally, the word is snatched away. In Latin, that gets translated into the word rapture. And if you've heard of the rapture, this is the text that that comes from. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. It's going to be this great reunion, this homecoming event in the clouds with a resurrected body. What's that going to be like? You're up in the clouds with your new body. And so we shall always be with the Lord. We're never leaving him at that point. We're always with him physically at that point. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The resurrection means a lot to us. It means a lot to the Christian. We cannot simply relegate it to some dustbin of theology. We cannot put all of our focus on the cross and ignore the resurrection. They go together. And when unbelievers come to you, and when they tell you it doesn't matter, or they tell you it didn't happen, just evangelize them. If so-called believers come to you and tell you it's not that big a deal, and it's not true, then get out your Bible and reason with them from the Scriptures. 
The resurrection is vital. It's necessary. It's essential. If someone denies it, they're not a believer. It's that important. Now, if you're here today and you're not in Christ, maybe you believe all this stuff. Maybe you heard about it your whole life, but it doesn't have an effect on your life. You're still living in sin. You're still chasing your own desires, your flesh. You've not submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus. Now's the time to do it because you don't know how much more time you have. And even if you have more time, do you want to spend the rest of it mounting up more and more sin so that you can be punished for all that? So that the wrath of God would come upon you, that the dam would break and all the wrath would come upon you and be punished forever and ever. Why not make Resurrection Sunday 2022 the very day that you responded to the outward call of the gospel? Children in the room, adults in the room. Have you submitted yourself to the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to him in full faith that he's your savior? Have you acknowledged that he's your king, that he reigns and has every authority over your life? And have you turned away from your sin to do that? Turned completely away from your sin. Not that you kept a big bag of sin to go with you through the rest of your life and call yourself a Christian. But you've turned from it and you fought the desires to go back and you continue to fight them. And even though you slip back sometimes, Christ is there to bring you and lead you forward. Is that you? Now's the day. Don't harden your hearts. We read it in the psalm. Providentially, that was our psalm reading today. Don't harden your hearts. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray this morning that that would happen. Everyone in this room would submit to the Lord. Either the believer would submit to his word and believe every word that is written and live it out and obey it. And let it, the resurrection especially, motivate us for holiness. And we pray for the unbelievers here today that they would submit themselves to Christ as Lord. Truly come to him in saving faith. Not just pretending to be Christians. Not just coming to church a few times a year and calling themselves a Christian. But truly honoring and loving and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for that to happen here. Thank you, Lord for the gospel accounts. Thank you for the resurrection. Let it encourage us this day. We pray this in the name of our Lord, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.